welcome back to Cognitive Revolution. I'm Cody Commerce, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. So before we get to today's guest, I want to tell you about another podcast that I've been working on. The first episode of Season 1 comes out this Thursday, September 10th. Uh, the show is called Notes from the Field. It's about travel. And as you may know, if you're a regular listener on this show, I've got a not-so-secret obsession with anthropologists. I, I love the idea of people who go to an unfamiliar place, get a feel for what it's like, and come back to report to the rest of us about what they've seen. So this show is my version of that. Uh, you can get a taste for uh, uh, what it means because I will be releasing one of my favorite episodes from season one of Notes from the Field later this week on the Cognitive Revolution feed. So that episode is on Istanbul. Uh, keep an eye out for that. I'd appreciate it if you take a listen. And if you enjoy it, uh, I bet you'll like the rest of the episodes too. Okay, so my guest today is Sir Nigel Shadbolt. Nigel is something of a mythical figure in my neck of the woods. Um, and sort of to get to that, there's a number of things that need a bit of explaining so you can uh, see the whole picture here. So one of them is the college system at Oxford. So both Oxford and Cambridge uh, distinguish between the university as a whole and the constituent colleges. So in general, each person has an affiliation not only with the university and a specific academic department, but also a college. And the uh, department and the college usually have nothing to do with one another. So for example, I'm in the Department of Psychology, but in Jesus College. Almost all of my psychology colleagues are in different colleges, and pretty much no one else in Jesus College studies psychology. Um, so the college, basically, its point is to serve as your social hub to the university. It also gives you a smaller subset of the whole community to connect with. And, uh, you know, when I got here, I was actually surprised how effective the system is, since effective usually isn't the first term that comes to mind when describing any system of British bureaucracy. Um, but so what it does is that it, it overcomes the, the problem of how to make friends in graduate school who don't share your same professional interests. So under other circumstances, it's difficult to meet people outside your department. You know, so for instance, psychologists tend to have friends uh, who are mostly other psychologists, right? And so at any rate, uh, Nigel is the principal of my college, uh, and he is generally spoken of around here uh, with, I'd say, hushed tones and even a certain sense of, of reverence. And um, there's one other thing, which is that as an American, I didn't really understand uh, when coming to Oxford that there are substantive differences between the colleges. Uh, it actually matters which one you pick. And it's the sort of esoteric knowledge that mainly resides in the upper striations of British society. Uh, but there's actually rather a lot of deliberation that could go into a college choice. Uh, yet a lot of international students just allow themselves to be randomly assigned. I was somewhere in between. Uh, the story there is that when I was filling out my online application for grad school here, uh, I was presented with a drop-down list of potential colleges I could select. And uh, scanning through the list, I saw names like Christchurch, Corpus Christi, Maudlin, named after uh, Mary Magdalene, uh, St. John's, and so on. And then I saw the obvious choice, 
Jesus College. Why, in God's name, would I choose to be affiliated with one of these subsidiary entities when I could just go straight for the man himself? Uh, I was also drawn to the fact that the college seemed to have been named by someone with only a cursory understanding of Anglophone naming conventions. For example, if you uh, passed a bridge named Christchurch Bridge, you wouldn't think twice. Uh, That's a totally normal name. But if that bridge was named Jesus Bridge, you might think to yourself, huh, now here's a person who doesn't really get how a bridge is supposed to be named. And I thought that was great. Uh, and though perhaps uh, slightly unorthodox, it turned out to be a, fast, a fantastic rationale for choosing a college. You know, for example, all of the college administrators uh, evidently set up their email accounts so that the first name is Jesus and the last name is office of accommodation or whatever their jurisdiction is. And so as a consequence, my inbox is always a flood with correspondence from Jesus. That's great. Uh, The people are also great. And Nigel is great. Uh, The other thing that requires brief explanation, which I don't at all have the expertise to go into, is the Order of the British Empire, which is the official name for British knighthood, aka the Sir and Sir Nigel. Um, frankly, I didn't, I didn't get a straight answer from him about what exactly it means besides the fact that it's generally considered a big deal, uh, but that's fine. It sounds cool. Uh, Nigel was uh, uh, key in developing uh, the technology for the World Wide Web alongside his uh, longtime collaborator, Tim Berners-Lee. Together, they co-founded the Open Data Institute. And uh, Nigel has made significant contributions in a number of different fields and a number of different capacities as a policy advisor. And I could list all of them, uh, but instead, why don't you just take my word for it that Nigel has accomplished an awful lot of impressive stuff in a lot of different fields. Uh, I'm excited to share our conversation together. And so without further ado, here is Sir Nigel Shadbert. All right, so the uh, the first thing I'd like to get straight on out of the gate is, um, okay, so as an American, sort of uninitiated about the whole order of the British Empire system, and uh, great though the advancements in, in AI and computer science might be, it's not immediately clear to me what their connection to uh, knighthood is. So uh, well, how does this how does this whole thing work? And, and I mean, I guess I'm imagining maybe the Queen just has a look over the latest academic papers and select a handful for special <laughs> commendation. What does what what is what does that whole thing look like? Oh, well, that's a, that's a, that's a deep mystery and the honors system in the uh, the UK um, and elsewhere, I guess. I mean, th- this this award was uh, it was wonderful. It was uh, made in uh, two thousand and thirteen, and the citation reads for services to science and engineering. And so they can be very broad based. Um, in fact, your name gets nominated um, to a panel who review um, honours submissions uh, and the letter comes from the prime minister's office, essentially, and um, tells you that the, the, uh, the Queen would be uh, pleased to uh, award you a particular honour. And they come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. Um, a knighthood is 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 a, is a very wonderful thing. I think it's the oldest um, order of chivalry, um, and it's uh, essentially a recognition. It's not just based on academic papers. It can be based based on, on on your contribution to the 
to science in general or to policy. And uh, I think it's a recognition that, uh, that that work in some sense has been material in uh, in the life of the country. And so it is very broadly defined. And uh, so it, it isn't definitely about uh, reviewing uh, um, papers and, and coming to a view. And, and there's, a, there's, a, there's an extensive process for vetting submissions and then coming up with a set of suggestions so uh, and, and and you have no sight of that whatsoever <laughs> yeah is there anything that uh changes immediately after that happens like is there is there some uh situation in which you get treated differently or, or some unexpected perk uh that you wouldn't have otherwise expected i'm not sure about that i mean it's interesting that you you know it is a, it is a it's an award where you know you you can use the title some people say it They've noticed it helps them kind of book theatre tickets faster. But honestly, <laughs> I uh, I guess uh, I'm curious if you've traveled to Germany recently because they sort of, you know, have this system for compound uh, titles, right? Where it's like, uh, hey, Dr. Professor, I, want, I wonder uh, how, how many you would have to add on there in order to like buy a plane ticket to Germany or something like that. I have no idea. Look, listen, I mean, I think it's uh, it's one of those things where it's... Uh, it's lovely to um, be recognised, and it's nice that uh, in this case, uh, it's for services to science and engineering, and I think that's the thing that matters really. So, uh, uh, and and to everybody here in uh, in college and, and my family, you know, I'm, I'm plain old Nigel, right? <laughs> that's right. <it. laughs> yeah. All right, let's get into your story a little bit. I guess the first thing I'd like to know is uh, where did you grow up, and and what was that sort of like? So I grew up in a uh, small village, actually, in the north of England. Um, it's the place called the Peak District, uh, which is the beginning of the Pennines, the um, run of hills that runs down the centre, northern central part of, of, of England. And um, it was a lovely place to grow up. I, my father was the local policeman, in fact, or village constable. And uh, I kind of uh, uh, grew up in this in this existence, which was, you don't realise it when you're in it, it was a beautiful uh, um, uh, village context, dales, rivers, um, lovely small market towns. Uh, most of the uh, trade around the place, they were farmers uh, of various sorts and supporting a, a, a kind of the whole support system around an agricultural economy. But we were surrounded, the Peak District is surrounded um, uh, by these very large uh, conurbations. So to the south, you have Birmingham, to the north, Manchester um, and Sheffield. So uh, it's, it, it was the earliest pit, uh, national park created in England, actually, and uh, has always been this little getaway for people from uh, the urban, uh, uh, industrialised uh, high density kind of population environments and it's 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 a very lovely place to have grown up i have to say yeah that sounds really nice um so so from there you did your first your undergraduate degree in philosophy and psychology and then and then you you wisened up and went elsewhere <laughs> so so what what uh what first drew you to those fields and then uh what pushed you away well again the philosophy and psychology that was down to the fact that um i was always fascinated by by the mind i mean growing up um i voraciously read science fiction and say my world was full of robots and aliens and uh and i kind of also um 
like a lot of kids, you know, I, I was fascinated by by astronomy. You know, I grew up, I can remember watching the first episode of Doctor Who. You know, my mind was full of uh, of, of, of what could be out there. And um, so the kind of questions that were rattling around in my mind from quite an early age was, you know, how are we smart? Um, is there anything smart out there looking back at us? And could you make anything smart? And uh, those kind of three organising principles have really kind of been at the back of my intellectual journey. I mean, it really was almost a, a childhood passion uh, 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 or as a, as a, as a young um, boy growing up, as I say, in this very kind of traditional part of England. But I, you know, I went to a, a local grammar school. Uh, it was a, a, a place that inspired in me a, a kind of a real interest in science, but also the the other side. So I've always been fascinated by the interdisciplinary penetration of questions, you know, so understanding what it means to be human in the context of our science and technology has always been as interesting to me as uh, the science and technology. So science, psychology and philosophy was what was a good place to ask some of those general questions. But having done my uh, high school work in, in, in sciences, I, I kind of realized that it the idea of making sense of aspects of our cognition and what it is to be uh, human through um, computer programming yeah that's uh, that, that that caught my imagination early on in my undergraduate degree and in fact uh, I did a dissertation around AI when you know, still AI had been around as people realized for you know um, uh, 20 years you know from the Dartmouth conference and earlier 56 but in about 1970 uh, five six I did a dissertation on AI and was looking at the progress of the subject and really just got hooked into that kind of whole question of whether mathematizing and computational models of thought were a way of making sense of ourselves. I know uh, a lot of your initial work was on natural language processing and how to get uh, AI to do language well. Uh, how what, what what sort of got you? What was it about that that drew you in? And um, I guess where yeah where did that lead you? Well, to that's an interesting afterwards? point. Yeah, I, I I went up to Edinburgh to do my um, PhD work uh, in the Department of Artificial Intelligence, and back in 1978, it was the you know that it was about the only specific Department of Artificial Intelligence um, so named in Europe. There were there were AI groups around the place, but there was a department. And and at that stage, I think um, AI and cognitive science in general was very seized with the um, proposition that you make sense of human intelligence by understanding it as a physical symbol system. Um, and the manipulation of those symbols kind of equated to uh, to, uh, to 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 intelligent cognitive processing, and the and Edinburgh in particular had a, a long-standing strength in linguistics. Um, it had groups who had looked at the um, the basis of the psycholinguistics uh, as well of human uh, language processing, and in terms of the techniques and methods we had available, um, language processing. The analysis of syntax, semantics. Um, there was a strong um, consensus in the field that this structural linguistics was the way to go, and that computers would be a good way to understand um, automatic processing of language. And uh, yeah, that's that's really uh, one of the main reasons. It also kind of um, 
brought together an interest around semantics as well. That how could how could uh, language and these terms have meaning and their pragmatic use. So my thesis was actually around computational models of discourse, where you're trying to understand how speakers and listeners stay synced up and make sense of each other's utterances, almost as if they were uh, creating a a mutual plan of intelligibility. And that planning model was also a model that was very explicit in AI at the time. So it seemed that there was a convergence of methods and techniques on an interesting problem. Yeah, no, a, a hugely interesting problem, too. Um, and I guess one thing that I'm curious about is that um, so clearly there was a lot of interesting questions and definitely some useful approaches in um, uh, in natural language processing at that time. But it, it wouldn't necessarily uh, uh, be the sort of burgeoning of, of of large scale linguistic techniques that we see today so there's there was uh, even then i think it was it was understood that there were some limitations there so did you did you move on because you got frustrated with what was uh available and what you could do or did you did you sort of did you find something better or what did what did that look like moving on from that initial sort of interest which clearly you have transcended in many many different ways yeah. since then well, the computational linguistics was interesting, and there were some great people to be working with um, back in the day. And there was a whole tradition of linguists and people in computational uh, linguistics thinking about discourse semantics and, and how far you could take that approach. I think you're, you're, you're right, though. One of the uh, real challenges we, at the time was the absence of large corpora, large sets of data that, um, that allowed you to kind of really uh, look at... Um, you know, the distributional statistics around uh, language, um, um, whether you could find structure across lots and lots of samples of discourse. Um, and of course, that has completely changed in the in the modern era. And I think Edinburgh in particular began to do serious work on, on, on assembling these large-scale corpora and, and other groups had been as well. But there was, as you say, definitely a challenge around just having enough data at scale to really perhaps make progress. Although at the time, I have to say, when I when I kind of then moved to my first um, lectureship or assistant professorship, as you would call it, um, at the University of Nottingham, I joined a psychology department to set up an AI group. Um, the move there was into what we called expert systems at the time or knowledge-based systems. And that seemed a very natural transition. I'd done interesting work in computational linguistics, uh, but it seemed like there were just as interesting and rather diverse challenges around the idea of trying to operationalize uh, human expertise and indeed elicit models of human problem solving more generally. Yeah, so this is, this is maybe fast forwarding a little bit, um, but I want to kind of get your take on the future of these Sort of connectionist versus symbolic approaches in AI. So, um, as we've kind of outlined here, on the one hand, you have neural networks, which have so shown lots of promise in in going through these big corpora of uh, different data sets, language being one of them, all sorts of things. Uh, of, of course, the the game playing and and, and stuff like AlphaGo uh, and everything like that. But they're they're so powerful, and they've become they've become so over the past decade, and uh, you know whatever it's been. And that's coming from this sort of long-standing tradition of connectionist models. Then on the other hand, we have sort of where you got your start, which is more 
um, in the symbolic manipulation uh, uh, strain of things. And they haven't necessarily come to the same level of results as the neural network model have, yet there are a number of really strong in principle reasons why if we get something close to the true AI that we want, we're going to have to have something um, that, that works like that. So how do you sort of understand the dialectic of those two approaches going forward into the future of AI? Yeah, I think this is a, uh, um, a, a really interesting question. I mean, given the um, sheer size of the training sets and the power of the uh, new models, the uh, sim- sub-symbolic and statistical models and the kinds of models we find now deployed, that can analyze billions of, uh, of pages, essentially, of, uh, of a language, you have clearly found a, a different way of coming up with impressive task-achieving architectures, uh, competence-based models of language. The question about whether there's still a role for symbolic um, structural descriptive linguistics, absolutely, I think there is. I mean, not least because... Um, it's a fascinating fact that you can reproject back onto the structure of language these um, classifications, these categories. When we're often trying to do explicit markup and annotations, then we resort to uh, often semantic uh, uh, grammars to do that. Um, that we can see in the the work on trying to understand the pragmatics of speech. That again, looking back to structural models for that is clearly helpful. And indeed, some of the most impressive um, language um, um, uh, interaction systems, um, you know, the series of this world, uh, were built on compositional um, vocabularies of commands and instructions, you know, in, initially. So you do, I think, find in a hybrid approach um, complementary strengths. And as we go through uh, and look at uh, particular linguistic tasks, it's often useful to look at them structurally. It's often useful to mark them up, to enrich them, to provide additional metadata, to take um, a compositional view. The work that happened in the in the semantic web was an attempt to put knowledge representation into the web at scale. Again, it found the explicit detection of relationships within discourse, within language. Relational identifiers, hugely important to make sense of the explicit semantics that were being discussed in, a, in an Amazon transaction or whatever it might be. So I think there is a place where they, um, they, will, they, they find convergence. Yeah, definitely. Let's, uh, let's dig into a little bit more of these uh, sort of big data schemes and, and the open data stuff that you've worked on. Uh, and sort of to, to open that up, I'm curious to hear about what sort of life logging you do personally. Uh, that's it. Well, I think when I began, um, I, I well remember a project back in uh, the early 2000s that uh, when I was at Southampton uh, working with, with Wendy Hall and others, we actually set up a, a, a project within a, a UK set of challenges called um, Grand Computing Challenges called Memories for Life. And this was whole idea of, 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 of what sorts of autobiographical um, um, content we might have and start to deposit now and in the future. So the quantified self, of course, community have been doing this for some time. But 
Uh, for myself, uh, what do I life log? I have a fairly extensive collection of of, of photographs as that's become available, you know, um, emails kind of stretching back into the dim history of time where you actually think that uh, we redo, we, and there are kind of research projects to kind of make sense of what the narrative threads might be in all of that uh, email trail that you have. Um, and I've always kept um, uh, logbooks, actually explicit written logbooks for a long time about the kind of research we're doing. Um, most of our work, of course, is now published uh, online and the underlying data for that um, becomes another kind of asset. So I think that the whole move around um, enumerating the data that is material um, to us um, and that we have. So I wouldn't say it's completely extensive. I think uh, echoing some of Vint Cerf's uh, uh, concerns, I have become very aware that we occasionally find ourselves um, um, with a very serious uh, transition problem that um, the digital dark ages is when, you know, suddenly an operating system changes under your feet or an application changes under your feet to the extent that a whole bunch of content becomes inaccessible. Or it could be if you could be bothered to go through about 15 intermediary steps and you always promised yourself you'll do that at some point, but then you don't and it becomes increasingly hard to recover content even from a, a few decades ago. So I kind of... Uh, both um, really interested in life logging on the one hand. I can't say I'm an absolute adherent to it. And I've also suffered the trials and tribulations of losing stuff through time. Hmm. Yeah, I guess um, one thing that seems sort of uh, interesting to me is that there's a little bit of a um, maybe a tension of sorts between the bucolic existence that you enjoyed growing up and how much you've become a part of the what is essentially a push towards a you know science fiction-esque future of of open data and artificial intelligence all that sort of stuff um so yeah do you do you make anything of that sort of contrast between your uh growing up and 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 where you've gone now or or uh beyond the sort of interest in science fiction do you think that there was a a part of you that was always curious about those sort of things? I don't know. I think I think sometimes you yearn for the simpler life <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, wonder whether we have brought ourselves to um, a better place. Um, but I think that uh, in, in so many ways, we've, we've given ourselves tools that augment our intelligence and amplify what we can do. It's, uh, it's such... A different world but we often yearn for something simpler i think one of the lessons of the lockdown has been that people have found um, a chance to read uh, if they're not completely consumed by endless video conference calls they're definitely uh, reminding themselves of uh, of different and perhaps even simpler existences but no i think that uh, that tension between technology um empowering us um, rather than oppressing us. I always wanted to believe as a technological optimist that this stuff could empower us. But of course, there are real concerns that it shouldn't oppress us. And I think back to the issue around open data. My my absolute belief around open data was that large parts of the data ecosystem are best seen as held in a kind of public trust. They're a public commons. They're a, com they're a, they're a, they're a common benefit. 
And this isn't data about all of our own personal activity, but it's data about everything from when the trains run to whether what the weather's doing to uh, to who owns uh, what um, shares in a particular company. But there is clearly a set of data which should remain and reside um, within the autonomy and uh, orbit of an individual or groups of individuals and getting that kind of balance right between what this um, you know and uh, people like Zhubov write about it in, in surveillance capitalism how we how we how we manage the way forward such that we do have, as individuals allow the technology to empower us uh, that we do have an interest in the data that we generate as much as the large platforms do. I think that is definitely something that has, um, uh, that has certainly uh, uh, come to uh, uh, occupy some of my thinking in recent years. So you have two kids, um, and I guess I'm curious what sort of advancements in open data or the way you know, sort of our, our data are harnessed in society would you like to see happen in their lifetimes or maybe even in your, your grandchildren's lifetime? Mm. Well, in terms of open data, I mean, that is definitely work in progress. I mean, when I think back to uh, when you could move around London just as easily as you like, um, you know, the things that a, an app like City Mapper give you, which is based on the whole source range of um, open data, um, from everybody such as Transport for London and whoever that you know these these things efficiently provide a data infrastructure where just things get easier you know finding your way route finding picking up the bus when it's there or the tube or whatever and as you move that across into different areas of experience efficient use of your your of, of, of the way you use um, your energy in a house or your energy within a business we know that various forms of publishing the core underlying data about these processes lead for more efficient and uh, use and better allocation of resources. And I think you can think of going forward and wanting to see a lot more of that. Uh, what would I like to see for my kids or my grandkids? I would like to see more of a co development between the public and private sectors of the notion that certain data assets are in everybody's interest to have as available um, resources rather than to be uh, locked behind um, the siloed walls of a particular corporation or government entity. And that's everything from educational assets to scientific publications. I mean, it's great, again, to see in something like the COVID, the extent to which models around open access to scientific research have suddenly had to just bubble up because there's an existential problem to solve and people understand that uh, the niceties of behind the paywall subscriptions um, uh, can just be circumvented. Now the question then is of course is this the end of, of publishing as such? How do, we, how do we make sure that we do uh, align the production of this data? with uh, reasonable ways of making um, um, economic sense. Uh, and that's, again, where I think if you take this view that the data that surrounds us is a kind of common infrastructure, then infrastructures typically require investment, both public and private, to get them built. Yeah, that, that metaphor um, of infrastructure seems like a useful one. And I guess along those lines, and then also touching on what you were talking about, sort of the interplay between private corporations and 
uh, government is that, okay, so one of the trends that I, I think we're seeing around the world is people questioning the legitimacy of longstanding institutions, especially government. And, uh, you know, lots of the rhetoric that people find compelling, whether it's from Trump or, or Boris Johnson or Bolsonaro or, or what have you, it's about deconstructing, uh, in a sense, our existing institutions on the basis that they're not really legitimately serving our interests. And um, I guess what I'm curious to hear from you is how do you think that general sentiment is going to transfer to technology, particularly what I'm thinking of in the in the near term, I guess, is the fact that like someone like Google or Facebook has, um, in some sense, much more power than the U.S. government, particularly when it comes to, to, to data. And then in the longer term, maybe uh, that as we incorporate AI more into our lives, we're going to need to perceive those systems as legitimate for whatever they're doing, whether driving our cars or, or steering our financial markets. So I guess in the space of the, in that, that those problems what do you see happening right now or what do you sort of see on the horizon for us it's hard to not um, um, look again at where we are in the current pandemic and not actually say um, it makes a fairly good case for the role of government in lives now you can argue about the efficacy of various government efforts but the idea that we see <coughs> government simply moving to one side completely uh, and you know this will this will there will be different views about this in different cultural settings or in different jurisdictions but the uh, the national health system as a national health system publicly provided is the fact of life here in the uk and i can't see that changing and indeed i can see some aspects of its delivery being consolidated and um and enhanced as we kind of uh, move forward so the idea that government inevitably becomes smaller i think um, is, uh, is, 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 is a contested one um, and can be contested. The balance between private and public interests uh, and where value is generated and how you organise uh, a society so as to deliver appropriate levels of service. Um, you know, these long-standing institutions, so if we think about institutions, long-standing institutions... Um, include some of our cultural institutions, they include some of our universities. I think these institutions have every bit as uh, important a role going forward. The new class of institutions, the, 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 the large platforms, the question there, of course, is simply how are we to ensure that in their governance and in their um, uh, um, administration um, that there is an equity, that there is a general interest um, to a wider um, set of individuals than just the shareholders or just the founders of such companies. And I think that, of course, you know, we've been here before in, in, in the emergence of um, large-scale uh, private corporations. At what point people seriously start to think about regulatory frameworks or is the right amount of tax being paid? Are these systems essentially free riders on other parts of the economy? And I think a, a situation like the current one we're in, where so many assumptions and presumptions are being challenged, does provide grounds to to re-examine some of these some of these uh, um, uh, beliefs really quite fundamentally. And that's not to say that we can't and won't find ways in which the platforms, which are clearly fundamental 
to getting us through all of this. I mean, without the, uh, the large-scale data platforms and the extraordinary compute power we now have distributed across the planet, we wouldn't be um, able to execute anything like the level of interaction and collaboration that we're, we're doing now. The question is, what sorts of regulatory and what sorts of governance make for um, an equitable and reasonable return for all of the stakeholders in that kind of framework? And I don't think the answer is necessarily boiling government away, either national or local, and certainly not local at the moment. Yeah, I guess one thing that comes to mind for me on the question of um, how should we figure out what regulations to put in place is that there's sort of a curious thing that I observed in Seattle, where I currently am, uh, last week, which was that the, the governor of Washington state was trying to introduce basically a, a regiment for contract contact tracing. Um, which was which was that so if you enter a restaurant to get takeaway or you know a, a Starbucks for your coffee or whatever then you put down your name and phone number uh, and then if, if if you know there is a case that can be traced back to that then people then the, then the the city can call you and be like hey can you come in for testing and there was a huge uh, backlash against this uh, because it sort of violates you know the American idea of uh, you know different civil rights that sort of stuff uh but then on the other hand of course contract contact tracing has, has been hugely important in um uh countries that have done well with the virus so anyway my, my point here is that this seems like a totally ridiculous thing to be worried about when you consider it in the context of what corporations like google and facebook have uh in terms of your data the thought that having a piece of paper sitting around somewhere that says you were at a particular time at a particular place with your name and phone number on it totally seems um, like you've misperceived the entire thing that we're doing here in society with collecting people's data and having it computable for, for entities like Google and uh, Facebook and that sort of stuff. And so I'm wondering what perception um, of... Of, of data and how it's used in society is going to be important going forward for establishing uh, some of these regulations that you'd like to see? I mean, that's a, that's a, a very um, interesting example. Uh, I think we've always understood that in an extreme emergency, a public health emergency of the sort we're confronting now, certain sorts of assumptions about individuals' private rights may well be overridden by the interests of a large group. Um, and you have to go back to kind of typhoid Mary here in, 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 in US history, you know, uh, people who were literally at uh, one stage isolated to stop them infecting um, large numbers of other people. And that, that, that's, a, that's a very interesting historical ex example. But here we're talking about, as you say, um, uh, what's an acceptable level of of disclosure of personal information for issues like contact tracing. Of course, it's interesting, even at that level, there are currently a, a number of different arc fundamental architectures, some which seek to centralise the information, others at which decentralise it, leave the detailed identificatory information at rest on the individual's phone and doesn't centralise the data in, and is that better than or worse than the attempts to centralise the data, so on. And there are very active conversations around what what the merits are and what the benefits and pros and cons of that are. 
And I think that people are willing also to engage in a, an awareness that in certain contexts, some of their information is going to be used in a way that it wouldn't in more normal circumstances. Now, there the question is, can you ever roll back to the to the to, to the to the previous status quo? And again, it's interesting to see a number of governments where those uh, explicit regulations or laws are being written into the bills they're passing for for the emergency. The issue, of course, that, you know, well, how does this even begin to stack up against the amount of information we're happy to disclose to our platforms for the sake of the services they provide? I mean, that is an ongoing discussion. And people will say, well, this evidence shows that people are perfectly happy to disclose huge amounts of information for, for you know, um, really minor incentives and rewards. Uh, until, of course, it gets to a point that they feel that that data is being used in a way and for a purpose that they didn't consent to. And we get into the difficulty around what active consent here means. We have in Europe, of course, uh, GDPR. We have a regulation which gives people at least some uh, interest in understanding the purposes for which their data is being used and a capacity to uh, withhold their consent. But none of this is as yet really effectively plumbed in to the way in which we do interact with these services. And I think that's where there's a really interesting um, set of both technical and institutional architectures to evolve in the future. Uh, people imagine that somehow the existing contract, the existing architectures are done and dusted. It doesn't seem to me anything about, um, if anything, development of our technology has suggested that things can always be disrupted. Things may always be inverted. And there is, of course, you know, work as we speak to think about uh, efforts to re-decentralise the web or to leave the data at rest on with the individuals who have a principal interest in it and bring the application to the data. There are alternatives. Now, of course, whether they can be economically successful, whether they can provide the level of service that we become used to, that's another set of arguments, but I've no doubt that there will continue to be a contest between different ways in which information is processed, analysed, where and for what purposes. Cool. Well, um, I kind of, in the waning minutes of our conversation here, I want to bring it back to our sort of personal connection which is that you are the principal of Jesus College, and that is where I'm based at Oxford. Uh, and so I'm curious, where, how did you, um, well, yeah, when did you start there and what did that look like? And, and, and uh, uh, yeah, how has, how has that role, uh, you know, sort of played out for you? Yeah, that, that's where, you know, the great kind of uh, observation that sometimes life is what happens in between the plans you make for it, uh, you can never, you can, you can, you can never entirely uh, uh, quite put your finger on why uh, this particular situation arose or why this opportunity arose. I, I have to say that I'd had many. Um, I've always enjoyed the work I've done in the various departments and universities I've worked in. I'd been at Southampton for fifteen years, very happy years, and. Um, um, but also had been thinking, you know, where where else was doing really interesting computer science? Where 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 was where was really surrounded by uh, an interesting environment of other disciplinary work? And you know, o Oxford was on a pretty short list of places which would allow me to still be relatively close to 
to where we like to 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 to, uh, to spend our time on on the south coast of England. So um, yeah, th- actually, I was approached about the role as a head of house, as they call it, as the head of an Oxford college by um, by by. Uh, by, by, by a recruitment agency um, uh, who had been employed by the college to go and find interesting people. And I'd also, at the same time, um, been having a conversation with um, people in the Department of Computer Science and understanding what the ambition was there. And my dream job was to imagine welding the two together. If I could be uh, um, doing a, a job head of a college, as well as my computer science research with my with my group there, that would have been a perfect combination uh, and, and and lo and behold, that's what we have managed to to arrange. I think it's it's the college system in Oxford, as you'll be aware. You know, it, it takes twenty two odd twenty four thousand students, and there are thirty six odd colleges amongst which all those students kind of come to uh, to reside, and um, that means that in all of these colleges, they're on the order of. Uh, 100 students in each year as an undergraduate and 100 or so students in each year as postgraduates. Their community is on the order of 600, 700 students. And you can actually get your arms around a community uh, of that size. And um, the, uh, the, uh, even, um, the um, uh, uh, Oxford academic Robin Dunbar, of course, has done work on this whole notion of a optimum number of, of maintainable social contacts. And it's interesting that the Dunbar number is about 100 20 or 140 or something. And and that's the number of undergraduates that we typically accept each year. And that idea of being um, uh, having having uh, uh, oversight and uh, uh, superintendents and a degree of leadership with your governing body around that size of uh, that kind of community is really attractive. And the other fascinating thing about the Oxford model is that all the disciplines collaborate together within the college. You could be sitting uh, discussing uh, your work with a historian, um, a a specialist in in modern languages, an astrophysicist, um, a chemist, a biologist. And that that remixing of disciplines is one of the things that is the great joy of the of the Oxford College model. So it's been, yeah, been great fun and uh, um, allows you to kind of keep Keep, keep close to and uh, active with the research, uh, but also be challenged by other disciplines all the time. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's uh, an amazing sense of community to break down the sort of uh, too, uh, too big to take a bite out of uh, university community and, and break it down into a smaller uh, thing. And I've, I've found a lot of uh, enjoyment in that as well. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's, it's it's both modernity, you know, the kind of questions that you're interested in, I, I research and many of my fellows research here right at the limits of our current understanding of, of science and engineering, but also, you know, uh, research in humanities and social science located in this physical geography, the architecture that goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. And uh, that modernity and posterity is a really... Uh, you. You might think they collide, but I find them really interesting uh, compliments.
All right. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk today. This was a lot of fun, and I've been looking forward to this conversation. I hope we get to do a version of it in the future when everyone is back uh, on, in, in the college quad and everything. So That'd be great, Cody. I look forward to seeing you back here. I'm sure. Uh, let's hope that's not before. T- that's not too long away. Yeah. I, I hope so as well. All right. Have a good rest of your day, Nigel. Take care. And uh, yeah. Okay. That's great. That was my conversation with Sir Nigel Shadbolts. I hope you enjoyed. If you want to keep up with Cognitive Evolution or my other work, you can subscribe to the show or to my email newsletter, Dear Luke, which you can find on my website at codycommerce.com newsletter. You can also follow me on Twitter at Cody Commerce. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, you can also find my new podcast, Notes from the Field, anywhere that you listen to Cognitive Evolution. I hope you get a chance to check out the first season. Anyway, thanks for listening, and I'll be back here next week with another episode of Cognitive Revolution.